When it comes to transportation in New York City, there are plenty of options. You can drive if you want a car, hop in a cab, take the bus or subway, and then if you want to be environmentally friendly, you can bike. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Bicycling in New York City has a long and, shall we say, bumpy history. In his book On Bicycles, author Evan Frist takes readers through over 200 years of bicycle history in the Big Apple. Evan, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. So what inspired you to explore the history of bicycling in the Big Apple? Well, I had written an earlier book about the history of cycling in American cities more broadly in the late 19th century. So I was somewhat familiar with the subject in a kind of smaller chronological period. And it just struck me as a kind of interesting question to ask, to think about the ways in which bicycles have affected the shape and face and life in New York City uh, since it's been around for, for so long. And it seems like there are few kinds of alternative forms of transportation that have had that kind of endurance. And so I was curious to see how it came and went and the kind of political debates that it inspired and the ways in which it transformed the city. Where were you living when you first decided to take on cycling as a topic? I was living on McDougal Street, just south of Washington Square Park, in a very quintessential Manhattan apartment. It was a, a six-floor walk-up building, and so I used to carry my little yellow bicycle up five flights of stairs into a 200-square-foot apartment that I shared with my girlfriend and, and later wife. A very New York City experience, right? <laughs> yes, very much so. But I learned how to carry a bicycle up without getting hurt. Is there uh, an art yeah. to it? Well, a bit, because if you're not careful, the, the steering wheel will kind of turn a bit, uh, or you can poke your legs with the chain and get dirty and all sorts of things. You're now living in Virginia, but what was it like for you cycling in New York City? Well, it was both uh, exciting and, and terrifying. So uh, I was living through this great transformation uh, in which New York was beginning to become much more friendly to cyclists. So I sort of saw some of the early phases of that. But in many ways, it felt safer than it does in, in other places around the country, and that may be hard to believe. But here where I live in Virginia, there are very few bicycle lanes and very few cyclists on the roads. So you really feel like you're at the mercy of vehicles in New York, at least on roads in which there were bike lanes and, of course, on the greenways, which I used to ride quite a bit, especially up the west side. You know, I felt generally protected. But my favorite time to ride was, of course, late at night. I can vividly recall riding through Times Square once at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning on a weeknight, and it was just a cycler's paradise. Uh, there were very few taxis, very few people out, uh, and you really felt like you had you know, own the streets for a brief period of time. So you were here during the Bloomberg administration? Yes. A lot going Correct. on for bicyclists during that time, especially with the mayor's transportation commissioner at the time. Yeah. So when I moved to New York, this was sort of earlier in the Bloomberg administration uh, in which, you know, he wasn't a much of a, a bike advocate and didn't probably think about bicycles one way or the other. Um, but beginning in 2007, when um, he uh, tapped Jeanette Sadikan to be the transportation commissioner and on the heels of Plan NYC and a new push for sustainability, bicycles became rather quickly part of the agenda. And one of the ways in which the city was most visibly transformed by this push for sustainability. 
I want to talk more about that, but I want to reel back, and I want to reel way back right now to 1819 when the bicycle arrived on the scene in New York. It wasn't actually the bicycle back then. It was the velocipede, right? Yes, and these first versions didn't even actually have pedals. They're sort of more like the toddler bikes that you might see today in which kids push off the ground with their feet and just balance either on level ground or going down a hill. But nevertheless, they caused quite a stir in New York, and New Yorkers were thinking about, well, are these things going to begin to populate the streets? Are they going to be useful as a means of transportation? And people were racing them uh, and, and doing all sorts of exhibitions and tricks on them. But they were largely a, a novelty, and despite the hopes and optimism, uh, within a few months of when the first ones arrived, um, city politicians decided that they really didn't belong in New York, and they enacted what became the first of many bike bans. What were the primary concerns? It's hard to say. The The historical record is pretty thin, um, referring to these early velocipedes. But considering the kinds of things that bothered New Yorkers later, it was probably a sense that they were silly contrivances that were dangerous, that were difficult for people to master, and so was primarily concerned about safety, but also probably a suggestion that their usefulness was, was limited. Is it true that the owner of the first Velocipede charged spectators 50 cents to see him scoot around the corner of Broadway and reach streets? Yes. Well, and, you know, New Yorkers are famous for being entrepreneurial, and the story of the bicycle illuminates that, including from the very first ones in which New Yorkers not only charged onlookers an admission fee to see them ride it, but also began thinking about how they could patent their own kinds of velocipedes, how they could set up bicycle shops. So the velocipede came over from Europe, but where was the bicycle born? Was it born here in the city from the velocipede? Well, that's actually a, a kind of big question that the small number of historians who, who study bicycles uh, think about a lot. But most people would say that the kind of modern bicycle was born in the 1860s in France, and it was also called the Velocipede, and was similar to the first versions, but now they had pedals that were attached to the front wheels. So they look much more like we would think of as a bicycle today, although the design was was somewhat different. Some of the wheels were often larger. Um, sometimes, depending on the particular device, people were a bit more reclined than they might be on more modern bicycles. But velocipedes come sort of back 50 years later in the 1860s in France, and they become very fashionable on the Parisian boulevards. And so by the fall of 1868, they begin showing up again in New York City. Now, the earlier versions had been banned back in 1819, but it seems like everybody had just simply forgot about that old ordinance uh, and ignored it. So people start riding velocipedes through the streets of New York City, uh, along the cobblestone, but also inside velocipede rinks or schools that are these indoor places to ride. And they do so throughout much of 1869, and it becomes actually this pretty significant craze that grips the city for almost one full year. Now, they're still called velocipedes during this time? They're not called bicycles yet? They're mostly referred to as velocipedes still, but they are now occasionally also referred to as bicycles. So how were they marketed and sold in the city in the mid-1800s? 
So there were a handful of Velocipede manufacturers in Manhattan and Brooklyn, which were, of course, separate cities at the time still. And they were they worked pretty closely together to create a market for these Velocipedes. And so they would not only make and design their own Velocipedes, but the manufacturers were often marketers as well. So they would purposefully ride through the city and talk to people about what they're riding. They would sometimes employ their sisters or wives to do so, to encourage women to ride. Uh, And mostly they started these Velocipede rinks, which were essentially schools during the day that taught people how to ride because the kind of childhood ritual that we know now about learning how to ride a bicycle was not the case then. So these are grown men and women who've never experienced uh, or never had the skills of balancing, steering. And so learning to ride in as an adult could be difficult. So they would often attend these schools during the day. And at nighttime, these same schools would often feature velocipede performances, sometimes quite elaborate, in which people would uh, do all sorts of fancy tricks on their velocipedes, uh, and also races around tiny indoor tracks um, to showcase the velocipede's speed, and also just as a kind of fun spectacle to make velocipedes seem exciting. And at the end of these evening performances, oftentimes the manufacturers would come out on their own bicycles uh, and invite the audience to come down and and look at them and, of course, perchance buy them. So I assume they were selling tickets to these performances. Yeah, they were selling tickets and they also charged fees to belong to the schools um, in which you could get essentially some kind of package deal for a number of lessons uh, from an instructor or professor, as they often called them. Uh, and admission to the evening spectacles as well. And then the Velocipedes themselves were quite expensive, typically more than $100 at the time, which would be many thousands in today's dollars. Uh, So this was not an activity for the poor uh, and was largely for the upper middle class and more so the wealthy. That was going to be my next question. Who were they marketing to? And they were marketing to, as you say, the upper middle class and the upper class. Yes, and they had some quite exquisite bicycles that were for the ultra-wealthy in which they would make velocipedes with ivory components or sometimes even silver and gold leafing, and those would be several hundred dollars in, in 1869 dollars. So it was for definitely for the very wealthy, but you also see the manufacturers courting women, as I mentioned before, sometimes they would have models particularly demonstrate how women could ride, but they also made specially designed women's velocipedes that were meant to uh, encourage women to ride and to divorce the notion that this was an activity only for men. One woman we should talk about in particular is Violet Ward. What contributions did she make to cycling? Yeah, so she is one of the women at the center of the 1890s bicycle craze. So velocipedes uh, become greatly popular in 1868 and fall out of fashion the following year. And for the next subsequent years and decade, decade and a half or so, bicycles aren't terribly popular. Uh, And then we get some of these very high wheel style bicycles that are difficult to ride and mostly attract young, adventurous men of means. But by the time we get to the 1890s, we have the greatest bicycle phenomenon uh, in the United States, and New York City is very much the epicenter of that. And one of the key 
demographics of this new wave of cyclists in the 1890s is women who account probably for about one in five or maybe one in four uh, cyclists in New York. And foremost among them is this woman named Violet Ward, who grew up in Staten Island from a very prominent family, um, but is very much like a new woman of the era in which she never gets married, isn't particularly interested in uh, having a family, but rather in experiences, whether they be political and professional and athletic. Uh, And so she starts her own bicycle club on Staten Island uh, that is at first just for women, and then she opens her own bicycle shop uh, adjacent to it. And she becomes a leader in not only the Staten Island cycling world, but eventually the New York cycling world and the American cycling world as she authors a book, a several hundred page book that is basically an advice manual for other women on how to become a cyclist. She was also good friends with the famed photographer Alice Austin, right? Yes. So Alice Austin and and Ward started the club essentially together uh, and were two of the first executives. And they were part of a close circle of female friends who uh, engaged in many athletic exercises, most notably tennis and also golf. Uh, But cycling was was foremost among them. And Alice Austin, who later became a, a famous photographer, took many of the photographs for Ward's book and became part of this cycling club. You mentioned Ward Cycling Club. There were many cycling clubs during the late 1800s. How varied were they? Yeah, so there were, in the mid-1890s, hundreds of cycling clubs in New York City. Uh, As I write in the book, there are almost as many bike clubs in the mid-1890s New York as there are Starbucks locations today, to give you some sense of how, how popular it was. So they were everywhere. And cycling still, although it catered much more to middle class and eventually to even working class people, was still an activity mostly for the upper middle classes. But the clubs ranged quite a bit and included clubs for women, for various kinds of immigrant groups. So there were clubs that catered to Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Danish Americans, Italian Americans. And oftentimes uh, these clubs were, were segregated. So even though they included clubs that were devoted to many of these different groups, relatively few of the clubs had white and black, male and female, although there were some. But for the most part, they catered to certain kinds of classes, races, and ethnic groups. There was one cycling club in particular that was segregated that would later apologize for being segregated, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. The um, the League of American Wheelmen, well, I suppose they apologize, but they, they sort of go out of business and come back. So the national organization, the League of American Wheelmen, in the 1890s, institutes the word white as a requirement for membership in its official constitution, with some controversy at the time. It was actually fairly controversial, uh, especially among some of the northern members who opposed it. But nevertheless, uh, the amendment passes. And so to be a part of this largest and most important club, one had to be uh, white. But once cycling becomes less popular, this this bike club folds and is later resurrected, and the, the current League of American Bicyclists traces its roots back to the League of American Wheelmen. Um, but the initial club essentially dies. 
Another avid cyclist you write about during this time is Arthur Hyde. Who was Arthur Hyde? Yeah, so Arthur Hyde is is really interesting, uh, and in some ways he's interesting because he's not necessarily so interesting. He's a regular New Yorker uh, in in many ways, but what makes him so fascinating is that he kept a, a wheeling diary in which he documented every one of his bicycle rides over the course of three summers in the mid-1890s. And he was not the only person to do this, but few of these diaries have persisted over time. So I was able to find his diary and trace all of his rides in which he not only documents every turn that he makes and every street that he rides on, but also all sorts of interesting descriptions of the kind of landscapes that he sees, the people that he rides with, uh, the trips that he takes. He lives on the Upper East Side and for a number of years is working at Tiffany and Company headquarters, which was then on Union Square. And it was really interesting to see how he commuted to work because it seemed on my first read that he sort of zigzagged and I was wondering why he didn't just take the most direct route. But then I got a hold of some asphalt maps of New York City and it became clear that he was following uh, the streets that had been paved and he was uh, very mindful of the quality of the roads and would often go out of his way to stay on these on these smooth surfaces. In 1897, New York passed the nation's first set of laws regulating bicycles. What did those regulations entail? Yeah, so they really codified how bicycles should move on the streets and and legitimize the bicycle as a vehicle that belongs on the streets and as principally a vehicle. Um, So bicycles were mostly used for recreation throughout most of the 19th century. And even though that was still the case, these first traffic laws create another meaning of the bicycle, that is, as a vehicle that deserves real space on the streets and should be respected like other vehicles. So many of the regulations, the cyclists were very much in favor of, even though they were regulations. So they were required, for example, to carry lamps at night. Um, They were required to have brakes on their bicycles. There were speed limits that were newly enforced. But all these restrictions were levied on all vehicles, and bicycles were merely included in a list. So the cyclists, by and large, not only approved of the regulations, but in many ways they were the ones who drafted them to begin with and had lobbied city government to pass them. Were there any dedicated bike lanes during this time? Yes. Um, So there were on especially in downtown, uh, from sort of West Village down to the Wall Street area, there were what were called asphalt strips or asphalt ribbons that would run alongside the street. So there was the main part of the street that might not be paved or might not be paved well. And then a few feet uh, of roadway would be paved with asphalt on one side, uh, and this was intended to be a bicycle lane. Now, they typically weren't called bicycle lanes, but that's what they were meant for. Uh, And they tried to connect these ribbons together so that people could reasonably use them uh, to commute. Along the boulevard, which was the name for Broadway north of Columbus Circle, they also created de facto, well, they were more than de facto bike lanes, but they weren't painted. But there was a sign that suggested bikeless stay to one side of the street and all other users stay on the other side of the street because the boulevard had become so overpopulated with cyclists. It was one of their favorite places to ride. And so 
city traffic commissioners and uh, politicians decided something needed to be done and they needed to be given their own space. Uh, But photographs from the time reveal that uh, neither the cyclists nor other street users really followed those regulations. What impact did master builder Robert Moses have on cycling in New York? In the late 1930s, he proposes what is arguably the the boldest and largest bicycle path plan in New York City history, which is close to 60 miles of new bicycle paths running alongside parkways and through many of New York City's parks. And he proposed this for a couple of reasons. One, the number of cyclists was beginning to uh, rise again after a many-year downturn following the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, But during the Great Depression, a new crop of cyclists uh, come to be and begin asking the city for more places to ride because by this point, almost all the infrastructure built in the 1890s had disappeared or been repurposed. So there are very few places to ride in the 1930s, and the cyclists plead and ask Robert Moses for space. The other thing is he's exceptionally good at getting federal government money, particularly from the WPA, a New Deal agency, and he hopes that he can leverage this federal money in order to build these new paths, which would make his his parkways and his parks, which he was a great champion of, more attractive. So he commissions a, a kind of study, a feasibility study, we'd call it today, and then embraces and publishes a proposal to build 58.75 miles of bicycle paths uh, across the five boroughs. But as much as it seems as if this is a kind of bike-friendly push, part of the reason for the plan was also to make sure that bicycles don't take up space on the roadways uh, and that the cars uh, riding along his parkways would be able to do so unfettered. In the 1980s, there was yet another clash between the city and bicyclists, this one involving Mayor Ed Koch and bike messengers. What's the story there? Yeah, so of all the the bike clashes, I think this is my my favorite. Um, So in 1987, Mayor Ed Koch, who was earlier a bike advocate when he was a congressman and even in the beginning of his mayorality, really promotes the idea that bicycles have a, a place in New York City. Uh, and he commissions bicycle lanes to be built, on-street bicycle lanes, which are really the first ones to be built in New York since the 1890s. Uh, and he eventually even commissions protected bicycle lanes to be built, sort of like the kind you see in, in New York City today, where there was a, a concrete curbed island that separated bicycles from the main road. But there was a lot of pressure that he received, and those lanes only lasted a few months before he ordered them to be torn up. So fast forward now to 1987. He's been in office for a couple of of terms, uh, and he decides that as New York City in this kind of moment of chaos and, and crisis and things seem to be spiraling out of control, that bike messengers are a kind of symbol of the lawlessness of New York. And he was going to do more than just regulate them, uh, but he he was actually going to ban bike messengers from all of Midtown Manhattan. And this is, of course, uh, the main office in which they worked, where uh, they would deliver blueprints and modeling portfolios and sign contracts from business to business. And so he and many other New Yorkers saw in the bike messengers the very worst of New York and the very worst of cycling and cyclists. 
During the day, during the week, on three Midtown avenues, he implemented a ban on bicycles. And the idea was that commuters who wanted to get to or from work could still do so because the ban was only during the kind of middle of the day. But if you got to work by 9 o'clock and left after 5, you could do so. Uh, But the people who used the bicycle for work would be prohibited from doing so. And it didn't go unnoticed that many of the commuters at the time were predominantly white. Uh, but most of the messengers and estimates at the time suggested it was probably about three-quarters of whom were either African-American uh, or Latino. And so they seemed like an especially vulnerable population that, uh, to advocates, Koch was unfairly attacking. And so bike advocates and the messengers themselves led a number of protests through the city where they would often shut down 6th Avenue and slowly march up and down shouting. And they managed to shut down traffic for a number of days and they managed to sway public opinion for eventually once the advocates and the messengers sued the city and the ban was tabled, Uh, Eventually, the Koch administration lost any kind of public backing. And while the suit was playing out in the court system, uh, city council eventually uh, pushed the mayor to drop it the following year. And so the bike ban only went into effect for about a couple of days. So let's bring our conversation full circle now and talk about the Bloomberg administration and the legacy it leaves behind when it comes to cycling in the city. Yeah, so I think what Bloomberg, uh, especially compared to Mayor de Blasio, may not have been seen as uh, very progressive on a number of issues, and who comes into office with no real uh, agenda about promoting bicycle, ends up being uh, the mayor on watch during one of the greatest transformations uh, in New York in terms of making the city much more bike-friendly. And as I mentioned, a lot of it comes from an awareness of the the dangers associated with global warming and climate change. And after Al Gore's hit documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, Bloomberg and his uh, top administrators saw a clear link between sustainability and livability and making New York a place that could prosper and thrive in the coming decades. Uh, And one way to do that was to get people out of automobiles uh, and to make New York City a leader in fighting climate change. So bicycles were one part of that solution, along with congestion pricing, which failed miserably at the time, uh, but obviously has just been backed um, just a couple of months ago. So in terms of, of promoting the bicycle, once he became serious about that, as I mentioned before, he very smartly hired Jeanette Sadi Khan, uh, who became, you know, arguably the most transformative commissioner of the Department of Transportation. And she ushered in innovative uh, and new kinds of solutions, including protected bike lanes that you see along many of the avenues in Manhattan today that at the time were very foreign to people, even if they uh, existed elsewhere in the world. And, of course, creating pedestrian plazas in, in Times Square Uh, and elsewhere, and just increasing uh, the number of bike lanes and the network to make it more usably, and the perhaps most visibly uh, launching City Bike, which is the nation's largest bike share system, and was very much intended to uh, provide a solution for people commuting to work. So the bicycle has always been 
this unusual device in that it serves so many different purposes, but also has a, a function. And, and City Bike was very much highlighting the bicycle's usefulness as an alternative to the automobile, as an alternative to getting in the back of a taxi, and was intended to, to make these short trips more manageable and more convenient by bicycle. It seems that throughout history, bicycling has become popular, that popularity faded, it became popular again, the popularity faded, and here we are at a time where bicycling seems as popular as ever. Do you think that will continue, or will it fade again? You know, um, that's a good question, and historians are never good about predicting the future, mm-hmm. but... Uh, um, you know, I think the bicycle will have a place in New York City for a long time to come. Um, but there are actually some beginning creeping signs that maybe its popularity is already beginning to fade. Uh, a lot of the growth that you see in terms of traffic counts and number of cyclists in New York City uh, has moderated in recent years. And the rise of Uber and Lyft and, and ride hailing companies. Uh, have discouraged people from walking and biking and have incentivized them to get uh, into a vehicle. So that's been a kind of headwind. And, you know, the kind of growth in the bike lane network has also moderated. So, you know, looking back, maybe this is a kind of leveling out and then it will, will increase or maybe you know, the kind of end of the Bloomberg era, beginning of the de Blasio era was the kind of, you know, peak bicycling uh, moment. It's hard to say. Some of it, I I would venture to say, has to do with the degree to which e-bikes take off and become permitted and, and how that's going to affect the landscape of New York. The book is On Bicycles, A 200-Year History of Cycling in New York City. Evan, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Evan's book, On Bicycles, is out now from Columbia University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening. Listening.